Welcome to the Summer Call Play Podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. It's Thursday, and we're recording a podcast. What in the world what is, is going, going on? What right is now? this right now, Megan? What this are we doing? So strange. This is a mind fuck. That's exactly <laughs> what this is. Actually, Addy Dogs, who joins us for all our podcast episodes, is very confused. Yes, she's like, "Is the world ending? Are we suddenly having a different construction of weeks? What is <laughs> happening in the world?" Well, as Megan coined this, this is sexy science corner sexy science corner actually sexy science corner is a science experiment yes. so this is our first one welcome to science corner we don't know what we're doing yeah. uh we're gonna share some science with you if you like it that's great if you don't let us know yes uh this is is it a sexy experiment that is the question do you think it's a sexy experiment all science by definition is sexy all of it all of it science is inherently sexy okay well you're getting our feelings about this topic right off the bat from Megan. She isn't pulling any punches. She's just going for it. Actually, in fact, right before we got on, she was singing the lyrics to Kellis's uh, my neck, my back, I believe. So uh, it's perfect mindset for this sexy science corner. I was singing the wrong lyrics. Yes. You corrected me, but I always sing the wrong lyrics. I'm just, I'm just here for it. But actually, speaking of sexy, you right now are covered in battle wounds from our workout oh, yesterday. Yeah. You actually, you have one that's a little close to your jugular there. <laughs> it was very scary. So we did a rare for us sky running workout, which is we're just preparing for a possibly steep event that we might have coming up in the future. And I got nearly impaled by a big fucking stick. How did you not see this stick? I don't know. I mean, I was kind of, I was at lactate threshold, so I wasn't seeing I anything. It. I totally um, get it. But if it was one inch to down, I probably wouldn't be here today. It's a worrisome cut. Well, the workout started. So in the first 0.2 miles of the workout, we had to we had to cross a creek. Yeah. And you meticulously took off your compression socks, which taking off compression socks is <laughs> a lot of work. You took off your shoes. You crossed the creek very meticulously. Very daintily, very daintily. Meanwhile, I just like freaking went for yes, it and did. sent the creek. I was wading across the creek in the first point two miles of the workout and then proceeded to run the rest of the workout with five miles of wet shoes. It was great. <laughs> it looked like one of those uh, nature videos when the hippo just kind of runs across all of a sudden. That was you. I was pretty amazed that you decided to do that because that was kind of the beginning and we were about to do a hard climb and all of a sudden Megan's like, just going for it. I think our podcast listeners at this point could do a personality assessment yeah. on both of us. And I think that situation perfectly describes our personalities. Uh, you absolutely rock that climb. You also have cuts all over you, but nothing quite as... Uh as sexy as my impalement on mine, my neck. mine are a little bit more dissipated. I was daintily through. I had some like briars cuts on me. I inherited yeah, yeah. some small cacti in my socks. It was great. Um, so we both have sore legs to talk about this topic today, which is going to be a general overview of adaptation and how the body feels in the context of training, why it matters and how we can all cue into it even if you're being self-coached, but especially for the coaches out there that might be listening that are thinking about, okay, how do we interpret athlete data over time? And the way we're going to do this is structured off of David's Trailrunner Magazine article called It's Good to Feel Good in Running and Life. And actually, as I was writing in the podcast outline, I put It's Good to Feel Good in Running and Love, which I yes. think is even more <laughs> important, arguably. I don't know why you didn't choose that as the title of the article. Well, if we're talking about the endocrine system and sex hormones, talking about love right there. Love, love, love. But you're a brilliant writer, so I'm really excited to get to break this down. And if podcast listeners listen to our Tuesday podcast, this is just more fodder. I'm like, you need to write a novel so we can <laughs> read it out loud for the listeners. How great would that be? We'll see how it goes on this first one. We might be, we might be editing this down just a little bit. Um, but on the science corner, we're going to be trying to keep it a little bit shorter. Um, and a little bit of a sponsor here, trollrunner.com slash outside plus outside plus, um, is letting us use these articles, which are behind their paywall nowadays. Um, at checkout, you can use code SWAP25, SWAP25 for 25% off. You get all the training plans, all the stuff that's on Outside Plus that includes Trailrunner Magazine, Gaia, Backpacker, 
all the good stuff. So go for it. Look at you. You're playing hard to get with sponsors. Yes. I love how you're like, this is a little bit of a sponsorship. You're kind of like in the beginning stages of a relationship and you're like, it's complicated right now. Yeah. I'm not going to define it. I'm going to make them work hard to define by, this. By a little bit. I mean, we're not getting any money for it at all. Um, but the editor of Troner is like one of our closest friends and someone we admire a ton, Zoe Rome. And any anytime you subscribe, you're helping her and Troner out a ton. So do it. If you can, if you have the money to spare, it will mean a lot, I think, to her and us. She is a boss. We've actually talked about the fact that someday when we have kids, we want to name them Zoe. Oh, yes. We're going to, one of our badass corner segments is going to be her. Like Her entire backstory needs to be told. Um, so to start all of this off, there was a September 20th, 2021 review study that came out in sports medicine. I believe that's this week. So that was this week. Yes. You texted it to me yesterday and I took a scroll through it and I was like, this is super cool. It's basically like a primer for primary care sports medicine doctors on what happens to the body during ultra running training and ultra running events. Yes. So the study is called Potential Long-Term Health Problems Associated with Ultra-Endurance Running, a Narrative Review. Um, which I love that, colon, a narrative review. Okay, I've written a lot of narrative reviews. Yeah. I feel like if you're going to write a narrative review, you kind of have to do the colon, a narrative yes. review. It's they, the most exciting part of the narrative review. It's like an empire strikes back on a narrative review. Uh, so basically what they did in this narrow this narrative review is they broke it down by system. And so they went, this was a full scale, yes. like encompassing look at how the body responds to ultra running training and ultra run and ultra running events. And they broke it down by the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, the musculoskeletal system, the renal system, the immunological system, the gastrointestinal system. And then I love it, the integumentary system. So oh my goodness. Sounds so fancy and that just stands Can I get skins. a high five on that? High five. That's amazing. Here, I feel like we need to play a drink drinking game, even though we don't drink, with you reading these big metaphors. Those words. are the systems. Uh, that's actually the only reason I went to five years of medical school. <laughs> yeah, it's just to learn to pronounce whatever that fuck that word is. Even looking at it now and hearing you say it, I cannot repeat it. Okay, but what I love about this narrative review is they essentially broke down the health impacts by system, and they gave special consideration to female athletes, youth athletes, and master's athletes, mm -hmm. because I think those athletes have a lot of unique physiological considerations. And I love how they broke it down and just highlighted the fact that in for, for many people, like the effects of ultra running can be different. Yes. And like the reason that we're highlighting this to start is because this study points out some of the uncertainty, particularly around the endocrine and nervous systems. Um, there's a quote in there that there are limited data specific to female athletes who may be at greater risk of certain ultra endurance running related health issues due to interactions between energy availability and sex hormone concentrations. And then it, it continues on. And the big point here is that all of these things are extremely difficult to measure, especially when we're talking about the hormones in nervous system. So the musculoskeletal system, the power you can put on, on a workout, all of these things work on often week or two timescales of slight variations or even training cycle timescales. The nervous system, we're zooming all the way the fuck out and seeing two or three year timescales that are really tough to parse out. And that's what we see in coaching. And that really matters for how you approach training due to how that in influences your adaptation processes and your overall health as this study was getting at. I think it's really interesting to think about the idea that training heavily impacts the nervous system and that those timescales, as you pointed out, are longer. Yes. And we're going to dive into that in a little bit in terms of the context of overtraining, because I think that's a topic that's really important for ultra athletes. Hell yeah. So you want to get started on this article? Let's do it. You have tasked me with some reading here. Yeah, yeah. Your, your writing is fantastic. So, so I'm excited for this. This What we're going to do is like do commentary throughout, cut in with new studies, um, do you, dig into the studies a little bit more hopefully reach a point where you can use it 
for your training or coaching. This is like a book club or AP yes. Lit class where we're going to read and break it down. And I'm super, I loved AP and Lit class. Excuse us while we stumble over words. I will be much worse with my sections than Megan. She has rocked her reading recently. We should, we should really just wrap this reading. Yes. Uh, so the, the article starts, I think athletes often pursue a state of tiredness and soreness as a validation of training. Walking around with sore legs, that means you're doing enough. Tired during runs? Heck yes, you've worked hard for that. I don't think that's the best approach for most athletes. <laughs> Here's my rule for athletes. If you're tired for more than 36 to 48 hours, back off training until you feel good again. Let's call it the Lizzo standard. Training should feel quote unquote good as hell, <laughs> even if it means you're doing less work over time than you could otherwise. Now, the boatload of disclaimers that come with any article that I write. I'll be using the word fatigue throughout this article, interchanged with other terms like tiredness and soreness. But I'm not talking about performance-related fatigue, like in a race or training session. For more on that and this topic generally, buy three copies of Endure by the amazing Alex Hutchinson. <laughs> Instead, I'm talking about day-to-day -day tiredness, lack of snap on runs, and just the general feeling that the training work requires lots of dot, 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 work. Tiring, tiring work. Yes. Okay, so the Lizzo standard. Uh, by the way, amazing reading. I'm going to stop saying that now, but that was remarkable. I got really excited to read the dot, dot, dot at the yeah. end of the paragraph. Also, what I love about this is anytime you write sentences like, quote, unquote, now the boatload of disclaimers that I, that come with any article I write, I usually edit that out, and yes. you left that one in here. <laughs> you also, you that I put amazing before Alex Hutchinson, and I'm pretty sure Megan probably said, David, chill out just a little bit. Stop uh, being such a Fanboy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex, Alex isn't going to take you out on that date. Um, so the Lizzo standard, it could also be the Pharrell happy standard. It Ooh, could... I like that. I'm all about, I think I'm like a, what are you going for? Back that ass up. <laughs> a juvenile standard. That's the standard in which I approach training. Yeah. And the reason that I, I, you know, frame it in the context of this song is because that idea of that swagtastic approach to training really then impacts how the body adapts over time. Um, so speaking of Alex Hutchinson's Endure, it's an amazing book that we really love. I read it and I was like, it's time to challenge myself in a hundred mile yes. race. And that lasted for about two weeks. And I was like, wait a second, I'm not going to do that. I can also challenge myself on a hill climb or at the dinner table or something. Um, but a, a really interesting uh, illustration from Endure in from the scientific literature more generally is on the central gover governor theorem. Um, so the central governor is a specific brain center that provides a feed-forward regulation of the intensity of vigorous effort in order to conserve homeostasis. Essentially, you've probably heard of this talked about saying like, oh, the central governor essentially prevents you from killing yourself. And that's, so the brain is like a background mediator of how hard you're going in training and, and things like that. The central governor is hotly debated. Yes. And so that's the fascinating point here, I think, is the hot debate rather than the idea that this thing exists at all. And when we do, so sometimes I give athletes central governor workouts and yeah. I, give, I give them to athletes with a smiley face. And the idea is, is that sometimes learning to push past that pain allows the body to adapt to new levels and learn that it's not going to die. Yes. It's not going to die <laughs> on the planes as you push past this level of pain. Because if you think about evolutionarily, like yeah. as humans, we weren't derived to go hunting and completely exhaust ourselves yes. on the hunting. And that's where it's kind of like how I think about, you know, the central governor coming in is stopping that mechanism from happening. Yeah. And, but the point is we have no idea if this thing exists. I mean, there was a 20, 2009 article that says, is it time to retire this idea altogether? No progress has really been made on that in the time since. And it really underscores the point that when we're starting to talk about the nervous system and the neuromuscular system, we're basically like, it's pinning the tail on the donkey. We're like, in the dark here, a little bit blind, swinging at a pinata. Um, and I'm just using all of the uh, childhood party examples there. I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. Do you believe the central governor exists? 
I believe something approximating it exists. Okay, that was going to be my answer too. Yeah, yeah. I think that the central governor is a very cutesy and neat, <laughs> yeah. neat way of describing what is going on. But I think the the entire process exists. I don't know if like it's as clean and neat as we're making it up. Yeah, and the originator of the central governor, Tim Noakes, has some interesting ideas nowadays. So I think it underscores too people that go against the grain can sometimes decide that going into the grain is right on everything. And that kind of leads you down paths of being like anti-vax or something like nice. that. Nice. So I actually, it was a subtweet into a direct blow. Great job. <laughs> well, not a direct blow. I mean, uh, not a can, direct blow, but yes. He can, he can think what he wants. He can tweet what he wants. He doesn't know who the fuck I am. Um, okay, back to the article. Know your baseline is the, is the heading. Every athlete is different. My guess is that some elite athletes can withstand much higher loads of sustained fatigue and still adapt long-term, whereas other athletes are close to the edge, even when they're playing it safe. Know your background and your baseline. We're looking for deviations from normal, trying to calibrate your normal to whatever the Lizzo standard means for your physiology and psychology. Plus, there are times when sustained fatigue may be part of the goal, like in overlaid phases of race-specific builds, after super compensation stimuli, like beast mode marathon workouts or training races, and consecutive long runs for ultra runners. When you step things up to reach the next level, that may come with some extra fatigue, but don't let that become the new normal. I love the idea of supercompensation stimuli. That to me, that is just as sexy as sexy science corner. <laughs> and I love that you're bringing it up here because there's the idea that like, we are going to be fatigued in training. Yes. And supercompensation stimuli are kind of like, when you think about like the linear, I often think about training as this yeah. like linear growth for many athletes. And, and in reality, it's more like a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. But what I like to think about with supercompensation stimuli is the idea that that's like a little bit of like an exponential part yes. on the curve. Like you're allowing an athlete, you're gifting the athlete the chance to really like adapt and perform well with the added recovery. Yeah, totally. I like to think of it almost as we do our finances. So um, <laughs> perhaps like a normal training cycle would be like my normal financial approach, which is put it under the bed, hope no one steals it. Um, and supercompensation stimuli are like kind of compound growth, putting it all in and going for it. Um, so when you talk about these really hard things that will introduce fatigue and tiredness, Megan and I both had one of those, well, you a little bit less so than me, but like right now I'm walking around with really sore legs, for example, not something I'd want to do every Wednesday. Um, but those stimuli rely on the cellular level processes that are also pretty weakly understood. It could even be, Megan always gets angry at me when I say this, but it could be adult stem cell activity. It could be weird nervous system responses. It could be epigenetics. Um, but Going really hard, going to the well is effective every like month or so, maybe even more rapid or more uh, condensed for elite athletes. You redeemed yourself with epigenetics. You said yeah. stem cells and I gave you the big eyes <laughs> and then you followed with epigenetics and I'm like, all right, I co-signed. I'm yeah. down with that. Yeah. It's like um, when you give someone feedback, you start with the like, like a worst thing and then end with the good thing. Well, I'm really glad that you bring that up because sometimes I think the danger of talking about like rest and recovery is so freaking awesome, but also at the base of rest and recovery is the idea that sometimes training is really, really hard. Yes. And I think super compensation stimuli just emphasize in a nice way. Yeah, and I think it really gets back to acute versus chronic stress. Really, really hard, as you're saying, is the ultimate acute stress. In a effort, in a workout, especially when that's the goal, you can go to the fucking well. You can drill yourself a little bit. The question is, how do those acute stresses add up to chronic stress? So the problem is that the article mentioned too, is a lot of our pro athletes, a lot of pro athletes in the world are specifically chosen because they are freaks of nature in adapting to chronic stress when we're talking about the nervous system and endocrine system in particular. What if you are not, and which is almost 99% of people, 
And that's what you really need to think about when you're talking about, do I feel good? How do I feel for training? Am I actually adapting this to get some of that long-term growth process? Because, you know, the exponential growth is not sustainable and it's not something we're searching for day-to-day in training. Yeah, I love that idea. And just thinking about it exponentially, I think is really helpful because like the, the point of exponential is that's not going to keep Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yes. It's going to collapse at it's, some it's, point. We, we can't reach infinity. Um, and so let's go on to the next portion of the article, which is really defining the idea of what is sustained fatigue and tiredness. And you write, At one end of the fatigue spectrum is being 100% race ready, like you'd aim to be at the start line, the Lizzo standard gold medal. At the other end is full-blown overtraining syndrome, the mind and body implosion that is the culmination of too much stress. A 2012 review article in the journal Sports Health details the neurologic, endocrinologic, immunologic, and mood-related perturbations from overtraining syndrome. This article is not about overtraining syndrome, which impacts the nervous system, cognitive function, and every aspect of being a sentient bipedal organism. (laughs) Instead, this article is more about the subjective fatigue in everyday life and runs, feeling a bit tired moment to moment. Here's the most important thing to remember. Even before tiredness progresses to full-blown overtraining syndromes, there are impacts to cognition, behavior, mood, and performance, as discussed in the 2012 article and a new 2019 article in Biology Letters. That journal title doubles as good rebranding for the Penthouse Forum. (laughs) I love that. That final sentence is dope. Yeah. Biology Letters uh, could be talking to your urologist as well. But I think it's really helpful to break down the idea of like what is overreaching versus overtraining and kind of the spectrum of that, but also highlighting the idea that overtraining syndrome is still very much a mystery in the medical community and in the scientific community because it's so hard to study. It's wild. Well, maybe we actually start there in overtraining syndrome because uh, I still don't really understand it. It, As I get it, it's the the nervous system itself is beginning to shut down almost like a central governor for long-term health and saying, stop everything you're doing. That's actually, I I think that's a really good description of it, but I think it's also, but I think there's also so many other systems involved. You know, it's the nervous system, but I think at the heart, there's so many different reasons that overtraining syndrome happens. And I think we're still figuring them out and figuring out like why this all occurs. But I think at the base and at the foundation of it is the idea that it's systemic inflammation. It's essentially just fucking over the body. Oh my gosh. And I think that when you think about it in that way, it makes sense that all of these different systems are being hit. Yeah. And especially it's the central nervous system, like guiding some of these processes, which is really interesting because those are also what we say guides things like ultra performance. So it's not good to be pushing this edge. Um, but that's contrasted by overreaching, which is a term that's in all of these studies, um, which is a normal part of training. So overreaching, and this is a quote, is considered an accumulation of training load that leads to performance decrements requiring weeks, I think that's how you say that word, days to weeks for recovery. So overreaching, very common in normal training. I am a, probably functionally overreached right now if you were measuring me in a study. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but you add enough of those like uh, overreaching bricks up and you start to get to a point where the nervous system is having effects even before OTS becomes a thing. And this is all existing on a spectrum. So the idea that there's overreaching and then overtraining on the far right of the spectrum. But I think the challenge is, is that there's really no diagnostic criteria yeah. for overtraining syndrome. I think things that I've seen with overtraining syndrome, uh, depressed mood, yeah. um, just kind of like leg, persistent leg staleness, um, GI issues, uh, all kinds of sexual, I mean, function. sexual function declines, um, higher incidence of injuries. Fascinating. And this is more anecdotal than anything that I've seen in literature. I've actually seen some very strange nerve-related pain um. and cortisol 
coordination issues. So like what, what, what type? So athletes that just randomly have nerve-related pain, or this is what I've seen most commonly, is an athlete describes the inability to move one of their legs in a normal way. Yeah. So it's almost like they're dragging a dead leg around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually fascinating, Nate Jenkins, an ultra runner, is, or he was a, a, a marathoner who did a lot of miles, yeah. is famous for the idea of he's he struggled with coordination as a result of overtraining. Syndrome. I mean, one of the places I learned a lot of training theory back when I first got into running in the in the 2000s was his, Nate Jenkins' blog, actually. So it's fascinating because I was... I was enthralled by his double workouts, his Canova box, all this other stuff. And it led him to being a 214 marathon or a 212 even. Um, but clearly some issues. Actually, an athlete on the team who joined called it his Rufus, which is his leg that just kind of like stayed behind. Oh, that's, I, I love naming things. Yeah. That's awesome. So the idea being that short of overtraining, uh, there are places where performance can already start to get fucked and an adaptation with it. The problem is we don't really see that in a lot of these studies and in, in things because they don't follow athletes long-term. So we're creating this context where we're operating with a hard fire that's hanging over our heads, but we don't feel the heat. So we're just kind of putting our heads closer and closer to the fire and we need to tune into other signals because that fire, we don't want to realize it's there when it's too late. I love that analogy because I think it's back to the idea that like as you're slipping into overtraining syndrome, a lot of athletes like that just becomes the new normal. Yeah. And I think it's really important for athletes. I mean, if you're, if some of these symptoms ring true to you to take a step back in training and see if you can establish what is the baseline of normal. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think I know as an athlete, sometimes I've adopt, adapted readily to high levels of fatigue that just feel normal. And I take a step back in training and I almost become giddy. I'm like, yeah. whoa, I didn't know I could actually feel this good. Yeah. And it's because it's a slippery slope. And being accustomed to being overreached is a bad thing as well. Like we need to feel good to perform as best as we can. Article will get into some of that later. So I'm going to step up and start reading again. And we'll, we'll shorten this just a little bit. In life, excess fatigue might be heavy eyelids for no good reason, lack of motivation, or being a bit slower on the uptake at work. In running, think heavy legs, like you're sticking to the ground a bit, needing lots of time and effort to feel good each day. Many studies evaluate fatigue through qualitative surveys, and that's what I'll ask you to do in an informal way at the end of this article. While it's easy for athletes to portray those feelings as mental weakness, they usually have a physiological basis outside the confines of the brain, and this is really starting to get into the scientific details. One 2016 case study in the journal Physiological Reports looked at how an elite German training camp quantified load management in athletes. That study looked at daily measurements of oxygen saturation of hemoglobin, resting heart rate, body mass, body and sleep perception, and capillary blood concentration of creatine kinase. Every other day, they measured venous serum concentration of blood urea nitrogen, venous blood concentration of hemoglobin, hematocrit, and blood cell counts. If two or more values showed abnormal deviations for that individual athlete, then training load was reduced. Here's the kicker. Kicker. Interesting. <laughs> Running economy approved for those athletes on a strict load management routine. And quote, no athletes showed any sign of underperformance, chronic muscle damage, uh, decreased body or sleep possession, or activated inflammatory process during the 21 days of high volume training. They were healthy, happy, fast as crap, and getting faster all the time. And I think that's super duper cool because essentially what we're saying in this, this is one of my favorite studies ever. If you can I tell. love this study. It's yeah. so cool. So when we're saying tune into how you feel, we're also saying what this German camp did, which is tune into what all these blood biomarkers are saying. The reality is we can't actually do that in a fundamental way in training. I was going to say, as you were right, reading the details of the study, I was like, that's a lot of measurements. Yes. On one. Can you imagine being in that training camp? You're constantly getting poked for blood. That's kind of how you look after hitting all the prickers yesterday. <laughs> yeah, like your blood looks like you're one at those German training camps. Actually, you have a phobia of getting your blood drawn. And I feel like we should just send you to one of these German camps and they're going to draw your blood over and over okay. again. And you're going to have exposure therapy. It'd be perfect. And this learn is, a lot about your body. This is an Easter egg for those that are listening to Science Corner. 
I've never had my blowjob. It's been, wait, ever? Ever. Wait, wait, we never talked about Maybe this. Maybe when I was a kid that I don't remember. But as an adult, I've never had my blood drawn. That's fascinating that you're scared of it, but I've never had it. No. You just seen me get my blood drawn and you've been you've almost been about to pass out when that happens. I, I, yeah, I've had to leave the room. <laughs> it's not, I don't know what it is. Um, so you know, do what I say, not what I do. Um, but, you know, these sophisticated biochemical analyses are really cool, but we can't really do them in practice. Cool thing is things like WHOOP are starting to come in with an option for all of us to measure some of these these fine details. And there are some HRV modulated training programs that are starting to pay attention to like how the body is feeling and changing it in more of an objective way than just how the people feel. And other companies like Inside Tracker has really great biomarker panels that you can get that it can help kind of help give you a cue into how the body is responding to training. But what I think is fascinating about the German training camp is these were repeated measurements yes. over and over and over again. And I think it's really important that like, say you get an Inside Tracker panel or you go to a doctor and get a spot panel looking at hemoglobin, looking at ferritin, looking at vitamin D, looking at some of these blood biomarkers that you recognize that that is one spot in time. Um, so for example, complete blood counts, uh, hemoglobin and hematocrit depend yeah. heavily on hydration levels mm -hmm. and status. And that's something I explain to athletes constantly. And so um, the German training camp has the benefit of being able to look at trends in data over time. And that's so yes. helpful. And you know, that contrasts with other training camp uh, studies, which often show athletes get a little bit worse because they're overreaching all the time. And these other, these German athletes performed great that season. And it's a really, it's a sign that feeling good. It's not about accumulating training volume or accumulating hard workouts. It's giving your body a context with which it can actually adapt and adapt long-term. And that's what that camp did. Um, do you want to get back to the article? Let's do it. So the article says, would that intervention have worked over longer training cycles or for different types of athletes? That's tough to measure in a study, but my guess is that it's okay to throw that healthy physiological equilibrium off balance in extreme moderation for the body to have some long-term adaptations. But it needs to be accompanied by plenty of recovery, such as rest, sleep, food to avoid chronic issues. Other studies have shown correlations between some of these biomarkers, particularly these related to those related to inflammation and oxygen processing ability and fatigue and tiredness levels, along with stress. So when thinking about tiredness and soreness in this article, it's not a question of how bad do you want it? It's what is the objective state of your physiology and how can we tune into that to optimize performance, health and happiness? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the point here is how can we actually tune into these things? And I think it's really damn hard. Um, but the idea being that consistency is key. Like all of the studies are essentially saying, if we can stack up consistency over long-term cycles, athletes can reach whatever their genetic potential is. And what we see in coaching is that where athletes' genetic potential is, is often through the fucking roof if they give themselves the chance. And I think the tr this trouble, though, with stacking consistency is the idea that you're kind of on this continuum where on one end of the continuum is, is injury and on the other end, or the kind of in the middle of the continuum is adaptation and then the other end is rest. And I think for athletes, like sometimes you do have to toe that line between pushing yeah. the body and injury and that's really tough. Actually, one of my favorite studies is from 2004, where they looked at uh, 21 collegiate runners, and they essentially stuck these collegiate runners in an MRI machine and yeah. looked at their tibia bones, their shin bones, and they found that nine of the 21 collegiate runners had like a, a grade one bone stress injury on wow. on MRI, and these runners were completely asymptomatic and never went on to develop a further bone injury. And it just goes to show running and running consistently has these effects on the bone, has effects on the muscle, has effects on the endocrine system, nervous system, and we're not measuring yeah. those all those time, but that's 
it's happening beneath the surface all the time. And then that interacts with your life too. Like I'm sure those collegiate runners had, you know, finals and things like that. And we're all dealing with that. And the, the way to get over it, the way to make sure that that bone stays a grade one stress injury and doesn't progress to a clinical like stress fracture is to give your body the chance to actually adapt to the load you're taking. Um, and that's a really, really hard balance to strike and something that, I mean, for, for many athletes, it's hard to find. So back to the article. There are three pot potential problems with pursuing fatigue slash tiredness as a proxy for training value. Yes, this is about to become a third grade style persuasive essay. If I could get another crack at it, I am somewhat confident that I could totally wreck the elementary school curve. Um, first, a little bit too much stress is highly risky for health. Most injuries and instances of burnout happen in slightly overstressed times. If you're pushing the threshold consistently, it's tougher to stay on the healthy side of the stress and rest equation. Um, something we see all the time to, to hop back to the modern, modern era, uh, teachers at the start of the school year, for example, are like a, it, they get injured constantly and, and it won't happen later in the year. I think it's when the stress equilibrium starts to get thrown off balance. It's so tough. And then I'll go on and read the second point. Second, and here's where things get a bit interesting to me. A lot of training design is about improving running economy, making outputs take less effort. A 2015 review in the journal Sports Medicine goes over the running economy basics, but the main takeaway is that everything plays a role, from training to biomechanics to mood to all of those biomarkers we talked about. In states of excess fatigue, athletes obviously have trouble putting out efficient effort. We all know that feeling, where it just takes a bit more oomph to make it happen. That's likely not great for running economy development. Working harder to make less happen is not an adaptation you want to reinforce most of the time, though there are exceptions in heavy training for some training approaches. Yeah, and I think that is the main point here. It's that if running training is all about improving running economy, going faster with the same amount of like substrate use, then you don't want to get good at being tired. Like, and the problem is when we're talking sometimes about training approaches, we're making it so that people can hold lactate threshold or a certain percentage of lactate threshold for a longer period of time, what we might call fatigue resistance. Um, that is only trainable to a point. And then you hit a ceiling. And when you hit that ceiling, when you cap out, a lot of bad shit can start to happen and you're just going to stagnate and get slower. I mean, every listener I'm sure has friends that have gone through this or you've gone through it yourself. And so you, it needs to feel good. And I think the challenge with that though, is it's really, so as you're, you're kind of reaching and you're reaching the exponential curve to the ceiling, it feels very exciting. Yes. You're like, I'm improving rapidly. I'm pushing my body day to day. Like yeah, you know, I'm really going for it. This is hard. This is great, feels productive. but it stagnates rapidly. Yeah. And then I think it stagnates at first. And then oftentimes over time, actually we see regression. So yeah. it's not even, I mean, it's the ceiling below the ceiling. Yeah. It's like you're almost, you're either growing or you're reversing oh, very similar to how people approach like economic things. The, one of my favorite studies ever is this 2013 study in the European Journal of Applied Physiology. It took two groups of sedentary women, so putting that aside that it might not be directly um, indicative for other things, performing three training sessions a week. One of the group did high intensity intervals and the other did lower intensity intervals. Um, the cool thing, at the end of the 12 weeks, the improvement levels were similar. But 60% of the progress happened in the high intensity group in the first three weeks compared to just 20% for the low intensity group. So in other words, that lower intensity group was progressing and progressing. They were the hair to the, uh, or the tortoise to the hair. And that tortoise was going to fucking wreck the hair long-term, I bet, if we zoomed out a year or two. I, I was just about to say that. So the thing is, this study is 12 weeks. But what happens if we look at two years, if we look at three years, if we look at people that are even just getting frustrated and leaving the sport? And that's why I love like long-term scientific studies is because those questions are so important.
And I bet if we were looking at that study and talking to the women in a qualitative way, the group that was doing the hard intervals would feel like they're doing better and harder work. They would be more satisfied with the training they were doing. They'd be like, I look more like that person on Instagram. And that creates this like shit stew where people work harder to improve less. And that's bad for long-term growth. Ooh, shit stew. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Actually, I love my in science, I love mixing quantitative and qualitative studies because I'm like, I just want to hear from the participants. Yeah, yeah. That, I feel like that's where the most valuable information, especially in exercise science yeah. studies, comes in. Especially because you can't measure a lot of this stuff. So, you know, if what we're saying here is that the brain is holding a lot of secrets, uh, both the adaptation and, and everything. So, I mean, qualitative might actually be the most precise in many instances. That's, it's my favorite study design. Bring me the quantitative, <laughs> bring me the qualitative, let's do it all. Uh, let's, let's get back to the article. So you wrote, the more compelling and interrelated point to me is that athletes that often find themselves in fatigue states may have trouble putting out efficient effort even when they feel better later. Here, we're getting back to the biomarker explanation of fatigue. Even if the mind recovers and the body seems ready, many of the biomarkers impacted by hard training have a long tail, where it takes more than a single rest day to restore normalcy, long before it progresses to overtraining syndrome. That's why the German study did daily measurements. Perturbations that manifest as fatigue may impact performance even when symptoms resolve. You can feel good, but if your hemoglobin is low from poor red blood cell formation during a period, previous period of overstress, your body won't be able to adapt to its potential. Third, long-term breakthroughs can be constrained by thinking fatigue and tiredness and performance have a causation relationship rather than just co-occurring for athletes that would be great anyways. Perhaps the most common roadblock I see for advanced athletes is that they think that extra hard work is the main source of their powers. Fatigue becomes a proxy for that hard work, so fatigue is elevated as a training virtue. They end up chasing the ability to withstand more fatigue, which may be trainable, especially for top athletes. So they perform slightly better while burning themselves to a fine crisp and peaking early. Okay, that's damn good writing. More, more foster, more fodder for why you should write yeah. a book. But okay, so I love this line that fatigue is elevated as a training virtue, and I think we see that far too often. And on Twitter, on Instagram posts, on just people talking and, and running groups about the idea that like fatigue is this proxy for oh, yeah. being super fit for for being ready to rock a performance it's marathon season right now and like the number of social media posts that are like i can't get out of bed i'm eating like constantly eating constantly is great but like saying that they, they can't stop or whatever all those things it's like yes maybe we're mirroring you're mirroring like a pro athlete you saw the problem is that athlete that is running for a women like a 220 marathon or for men a 205 are probably genetically pre-selected to be the type of person that can that fatigue and tiredness are mean nothing to their physiology. Like, and, and we see that all the time in blood biomarkers. When you first brought this up to me, it was fascinating to think about the idea that fatigue resistance may have genetic components to it. Yeah. And that opened my eyes to me because I think I actually see that as a coach that certain people are just really good at handling handling and tolerating and actually adapting to fatigue. Yeah. Whereas for others, that happens at a much lower level. And that's totally okay because that, there's probably heavy genetic impl implications yeah. there. And it probably gets back to those biomarkers. When we're talking about that long tail, I mean, every single stress we're introducing is causing like the, as the perturbations or whatever, where something goes off a little. That going off can be good and it's fine for the body. But what happens with stacking some long tails on top of each other? If you stack long tail, long tail, long tail, eventually you just are the perturbation and your body is kind of fucked from an adaptation perspective. And, you know, that's how, I mean, athletes will often peak after three years of hard training. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're capable of so much more growth if you're playing a little bit longer game, kind of like the women in that study that were doing the lower intensity workouts. Um, great. So back to the Lizzo standard. Um, put all of that together. And this is the big takeaway. We're getting there. Put all of that together. And my general fatigue slash tiredness standard is 36 to 48 hours. Think about your sleep how your legs feel, how excited you are to run, and all of the other thousands of little signals your body is giving you. 
a random list of questions. Do you feel mentally sharp? Are you excited to run? Do you have tiredness when walking upstairs? Any changes in healthy sexual function? Eating plenty? Sleeping enough? You get the drill. Some caveats to remember. It's related to your baseline, not some magical world. Also, fatigue tiredness sometimes follows a lack of activity or reduced cardiac output from a lack of intensity. So use your common sense too. Finally, all of this is connected to stress, which isn't just training. Make sure you're eating plenty, getting sleep, and loving yourself as much as you possibly can, given your brain chemistry. And this is how, so we use Google training logs for our, our coaching. And this is one reason I love that concept is because athletes often wind up writing a lot about life. Yes. And it becomes, we often answer, you know, we have answers to those questions for athletes without explicitly telling them that that's what we're doing. Yeah. And it's so helpful to calibrate, calibrate training in that context. Yeah. And the whole point here is adaptation. So, you know, we started by talking the, about the nervous system and the endocrine system. Adaptation in its broader sense is something that we do not, the world does not understand any uh, flow chart that tried to diagram adaptation would have probably 3000 inputs if it was being honest. Um, but the core mediator of it is the nervous system and endocrine system. So these systemic things that affect everything about how the muscles and brain operate um, and how they all work together. And because we can't measure those, we're often getting proxy variables. The proxy variables in this instance is literally just how you feel or the blood biomarkers. And we can all tune into how we feel to make sure the work we're doing is more efficient. And that's what this like good as hell standard is all about. I really appreciate though that you ended this paragraph with the idea about brain chemistry. Oh, yeah. Because I think, and I've actually done some research on this, the idea that depression, anxiety, other mental health conditions cause a high level of fatigue. So the yeah. idea of like getting out of bed and going about and like going to Zoom meetings and, you know, being a, a parent when you have mental health issues can be so challenging. And how like have you, I mean, this has been something that's really hard to work with athletes is because there's a very high baseline level of yeah. fatigue in those states. And how do you layer in training stress on top of that? Well, I think it all comes back to baseline, right? Like if an athlete just kind of is a little bit of an Eeyore all the time, we're looking for super Eeyore as the bad thing, um, but also paying attention to how can we improve this? Can we make leaps in other ways? Um, you know, when we, and I think that's actually an interesting point more generally, like when we say all of this, we are pushing athletes to the brink as hard as they can possibly go in training with high volume and hard workouts and all of this. Um, but we're not pushing them to fatigue for its own sake. Um, so a good example might be like to give it some life is thinking of some of the workouts we give, like, um, let's say three minute intervals, um, an advanced athlete like Megan, like Claire Gallagher, like Grayson could do 15 by three minutes, and they could probably hold their output at pretty high levels the whole time. Um, the point is why? Like, what are we actually stressing there? Maybe if before a key half marathon or a 10K, it makes sense to do that 10 to 17 days out for some of the central governor neuromuscular reasons. But if instead we cap it at eight, finish feeling good, progress through it, get back to training the next day, that's when you get to have these leaps and bounds. And so we're just, we're turning the notch up to 10 and then just dialing it back to eight and keeping that going all year round for 10 years and some athletes capable of like mind blowing things. And I think that's one of the reasons why having a coach can be so helpful is yeah. because like my baseline and my inherent state as an athlete is I'm like, let's dial that, <laughs> let's crank that notch. Like I listen to max volume when I'm driving all the time. That's just my yeah. baseline characteristics. And that's how I am as an athlete. And I think over time I've learned by touching the stove too many times, yeah. like, I can't turn the volume up that loud. Yeah, I get in the car, all of a sudden my eardrums just break in that like sudden burst when it comes on. And that's why you need a coach is to yeah. modulate that 
that you're jumping. Oh no. And that's why like having you as my coach has been life changing. And you know, you can self coach this, um, but make sure you're not deluding yourself because you know, it's hard especially with things like Strava. I wish Strava had some way of calibrating what we're actually seeing. Right. And as coach, any coach out there knows this, like, and, and you really have to internalize it if you're self coached, it's that the, the numbers that you see in these instances are not telling the whole story, even of how the athlete is progressing. So um, I wish Instagram posts could come with five-year fast-forward uh, pictures because that is what is fascinating. And the thing I'm most proud of in coaching is not an athlete that crushes a race. It's an athlete like that progresses for five years, whether no matter what that baseline was, because then I'm like, okay, that was the good shit. We were paying attention to all the little things that went into it. I agree. And I think the thing about being self-coached versus having a coach is the idea that an athlete needs to have honesty with themselves because as coaches, we're interpreting and combining a lot of subjective and objective data in athletes, the athlete honesty in the subjective data helps us massively as a coach, but it takes a lot of trust and a lot of love to be able to give that. Yes. And love might be the key point. Yes. A hundred percent. All right. Let's get back to the article. So each day, ask yourself the question, do you feel good as hell or at least close to it? It's fine to be tired one day. That is normal and explained by typical and desirable adaptation cycles. Don't force a hard workout, but you can run and you can even do a workout if that doesn't tear down your mental health. If you're abnormally tired for two days, make sure there is a stress-based explanation, whether that's a workout or work presentation. With an explanation, you can be more sure there isn't a systemic issue to worry about. In that case, you can run, but probably just easy. A workout might make even more sense for some athletes. Three days or more, the Lizzo standard dictates that you rest or run easier. (laughs) Beyond three days, consider backing off entirely or even seeing a doctor unless there's a clear explanation. Avoid excessive fatigue and you'll be a healthier and happier person. And I think there's a strong argument that you'll be way faster over time too. That's my favorite part. (laughs) That's the mic drop to end the whole article. Um, So essentially what we're saying here is that in this world where adaptation is weakly understood, All we know is that you're combining cellular and systemic level processes from the nervous system, musculoskeletal system, endocrine system, aerobic system, all these different things. You want to err on the side of leaving a little bit of cream, uh, leaving a little bit of room for cream. Because every time you do that, you're giving yourself a chance to progress. Whereas if it overflows, you're just burned the fuck up and you're like, shit, I have to go back to where I was. And you know, if you can get these long-term cycles going, that's when you get the compound interest. Shit goes wild. It's so fun. I love you using the coffee analogy. I'm going to yeah. go with a max volume analogy. Always oh. leave some room to turn up the volume. You never, that's true. You never know when you're going to need some M&M at max volume. <laughs> so, so leave some room to turn it up. I love that. And so one example to give give light to this, um, actually two examples, because I think they're both instructive. The first is Scotty Hawker. Um, he was second at CCC this year, third at UTMB in 2019. Scotty, if you looked at his Strava, has been doing often 40 to 50 miles a week. Like that's wild for someone that competes at the very top level of this sport. Point being with Scotty, one, he's really smart, trains really hard. He's also a talented monster. I was going to say fatigue resist, genetic fatigue resistance, yeah. as we talked about earlier, racer. he probably scores off the charts in that, even though we can't no, measure he, that directly right Yeah, now. yeah. And he scores off the chart on all of our metrics. That's awesome. So yeah, you don't need to be doing hundred miles a week is that example, but also with the caveat, He's a freak in the best way. We love you, Scotty. Um, on the other side of someone that I think kind of, if you go back through their training, is this this layering in of adaptation processes in a healthy context is Jenny Quilty. She just won the Ultra Terrell Huracana 125K. She was second overall. Um, and if you look at her training, it's essentially Tuesday strides, Wednesday workout, easy, easy, long run, easy, and strides. And she's done that for five years in a row. And every single year, she's just gotten a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better with rest breaks and all that stuff. And the point being, you don't need to like 
do these things that go to Strava and look like you're killing yourself because looking like you're killing yourself probably is actually killing you a little bit. Um, so go all in when it's time, but most of the time, wait till you have that perfect hand to go all in. And believe in the process yeah. too. I think we see athletes that believe like Jenny Quilty, oh, holy crap, she hits the believe button. And yeah. I think we, when athletes believe in this process and understand the idea of this trajectory and that you don't have to turn the volume all the way up all the time, it makes the process one more fun. Yeah. But also I think it really increases performance. <laughs> Heck yeah, it does. And so, you know, wherever you're at, you are capable of so, so much. I mean, coaching has shown us that, right? It's wild to see what people can achieve long-term. And even if you don't feel like you're going to win a biggest race in the world, it doesn't matter. The point is to go for it anyway. And that's especially where these long-term health metrics really come in handy because wherever you're at right now is just the start and you're going to fucking rock it. Oh, I echo that. It's just the start. Well, thank you, everyone, yeah. for listening to our science experiment. Sexy science corner. Sexy science experiment. So let us know if you like it or if you don't, because we're just making it up as we go along. Uh, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. We absolutely love you all. Woohoo! Woo Bye.